please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 15. We're actually going to be looking at chapters 15 and 16 today. That sounds like a big chunk, but it's actually not that bad. There's just a couple of smaller chapters, and they're both about the same thing. They're both about the judgment concerning the nation of Moab. And so as we look into his word, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we come to this book of Isaiah, we have to remember first and foremost that all of this story from first page to last page is about you. And that's hard for us because we want it to be about us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would write our hearts in that way, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would lead us to the truth that is found only in your word. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So as we come to this passage on the judgment of this nation called Moab, I think the best way to introduce this is to learn and to find out how the nation of Moab came about. And so turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. Before I read this story, I do want to quickly preface it by saying that this is one of the more... um, how do you say colorful stories in scripture it's a difficult story um, but it is definitely something that I think is important particularly as we study some of these nations and so I'm going to read through that and uh, let's do that so Genesis chapter 19 starting at verse 30 Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, and that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know that she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you may go in and lie with him, and we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn or the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben Ami, which he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So remember the story. Abraham and his nephew Lot were together. Lot went one way. Abram went the other way. Lot went to live in a city named Sodom, which had some nefarious reputation. God said he was going to destroy Sodom. Abraham went to save Lot and was able to do so. God allowed Lot to be spared, but Lot's wife died. 
in the process. Sodom and Gomorrah were completely wiped off the face of the earth. Lot manages to escape again with his two daughters, and they live in this cave together. Interestingly enough, if you go back and read the story, Lot was afraid of the people we just read about. He was afraid of the people in the area, but right before that he said that he wanted to go live with them, that he was afraid of the caves. Probably a comment and commentary on Lot's whole life, really. Um, But what happens next, again, this is a difficult passage. Lot's daughters become pregnant by him. And those children come complete, become two completely different people groups. One called the Moabites, the other called the Ammonites. Other, there's another place in scripture that deals with the judgment of the Ammonites, but in our text today, we're going to be looking at the judgment of this nation called Moab and the Moabites. It's a really sad text because you feel bad for the Moabite people. I think it underlines one of the ideas that we talked about last week, that just because people deserve God's wrath doesn't mean that we can't be sad that it's happening to them, particularly those of us who are in Christ and who are no longer receiving God's wrath because Christ received it for us. In fact, it's really one of the main issues that we'll be looking at today because it is this tension that causes many Christians to shy away from the message of God's judgment and sin and move toward God's love as if those two things could be parsed out separate from one another. Not only that, I think it's easy to go to the other end of the spectrum and then somehow see ourselves as better than the world, reduce ourselves to pointing fingers rather than providing refuge and truth. So that's where we find ourselves. As we look at this passage, I want to break it down into three main ideas. First, the lament, then the refugees, and then the plain truth. And so with that, look with me at Isaiah chapter 15 as we read chapter 15 and 16 in their entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 15, starting at verse 1. An oracle concerning Moab. Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Dibon, to the places, to the high places to weep over Nebo and over Mediba. Moab wails. Over every, on every head is baldness. Baldness on every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Eliela cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zor, to Eglath Shiliashia. For all, for at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping on the road to Honor. Sorry, I'm dyslexic. This is hard. Uh, Orinaeum. Thank you. They raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone out around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches Eglium. 
Her, her wailing reaches the Birlium. For the waters of Dibon are full of blood, and I will bring upon Dibon even more, a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah by way of the desert, to mount to the mount of the daughters of Zion, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest. So are the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them. For the destroyer, when the oppressor is no more, when the destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. We have heard the pride of Moab, he, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. Mourn utterly stricken and for raisin cakes of Kirhersheth. For the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and stayed and strayed for the desert or to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore, I weep with weeping over Jazer and the vine of Sibma. I drench you with tears, O Heshbon of Eliela, for over your summer fruit and your harvest the shout has ceased. The joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field, and in the vineyards no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore my inner parts moan like, the li- like a lyre for Moab, and in my inmost self for Kirhesheth. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to the sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word of the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lots of big words in old places. A nice trial. I promise I practiced all of those and still messed up the one that has the H's and the R's and the N's. All those letters look the same to me. This word Moab means from father. So in a very direct way, the people of the Moabites were really never able to shake loose their immoral beginnings. They started in a sinful way, and they would continue their sinfulness throughout their generations. It is very likely that they were a part of the whole kingdom of Israel until Solomon's death. If you remember throughout the history of Israel, you had David on the throne, and he had this whole kingdom of Israel that was one united kingdom, and Solomon the same. But when Solomon's sons took over, they fought, and they they divided the kingdom. And so in, in all likelihood... Moab was part of this united kingdom until the kingdom divided, and then Moab kind of split off and did its own thing. Moab plays a very important part in the role of Israel's history. 
The great King David himself had Moabites as close ancestors. David's great-grandmother was named Ruth, from whom we have this whole book and story of Scripture, the Moabite lady named Ruth. Ruth. He even hid his parents among the Moabites when Saul was chasing after him. Moab and Israel didn't always get along. They first opposed Israel's conquest in Canaan when Israel came into the land of Canaan from Egypt. Later, they rebelled against Judah. And so Moab and Israel always kind of had this tense relationship. Toward the end of their civilization, they, like others in the area, sought alliances against this coming threat of Assyria. Everyone's kind of wondering what Assyria is going to do, and the Moabites are no exception, and they're wanting some alliances. And like the others, they would be no exception. They would not be able to have to come up against the Assyrian juggernaut as it moved through the land, and they would eventually be absorbed into the Assyrian collective, as it were, and then later Babylon and later Persia, and so the Moabites just kind of fade into History, another sad story about a nation that turned away from God and turned to itself only to find oblivion waiting. So that brings us to the first point, the lament. Chapter 15 is basically like this song of lament for the people of Moab, where you have the people of Moab kind of crying out, and then you have them running for their lives, and then you have them realizing that there's no escape. And all of a sudden, all of them are going to be laid waste with this small remnant. As we read through these nine verses, as you notice, we were given lots of place names. It's kind of like a history. It's kind of like walking through the land of Moab and reading about all these places that once were or still are, but are probably called something different now. And so the ruins, again, there's only traces of these places nowadays. Dibon is this capital city of Moab, as we read about the temple there. And so notice in verse 5 what's going on. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zor, to Eglath Shiliishia. My heart cries out for Moab. Who is writing these words? Isaiah is writing them down, but who's giving him these words? This is God himself speaking about this nation, Moab, that he is judging. He's weeping for them while he cries out for them. He's also passing judgment on them. Verse 15.9, we have a very graphic picture of this judgment. For the waters of Dibon are full of blood, and I will bring upon Dibon even more. So even though their waters are completely full of blood, there's even more that's going to come to them. A lion for those of Moab who escape, for the remnant of the land. So all of those who are able to escape the city are going to be chased down by the lion, by the wild animals. As Once the Lord passes judgment, there's none to deliver and so Moab is scattered, and we'll read in 16 about how there's refugees that come to Israel. 
Barry Webb, who's one of the commentators that I'm using. It's a very good commentary. It's a nice, short, easy commentary if you're interested. Uh, He says of this particular lament, he says this. He says, in this lament, delivered by the prophet as the Lord's mouthpiece, we see God executing judgment with tears in his eyes. It should remind us sharply that there is no conflict between loving people and warning them of the judgment to come. The one is a necessary consequence of the other. Consider our own evangelistic efforts. I think many times at church, and not just here, and we are guilty as well, but not many times at church and in churches and evangelicalism as a whole, rather than use biblical language associated with preaching the gospel and proclaiming the truth and these things that you find in the gospel, we use words, and again, I'm guilty as the next, so don't hear me and see me pointing fingers at anyone, but we say things like, share the gospel. This has become a very important part of our vernacular. We talk about it all the time, as if it's a biblical type of word. And we know what we mean by that. When I say, let's share the gospel with this person, or I shared the gospel with someone, we know what we mean. I talked about Jesus with them. I talked about the gospel with them. But think about what we're saying when we say, share. I recently read an article in the Gospel Coalition about this very idea. This phrase, share, is very soft compared to proclaim or preach one is the hearer receives whether or not they want to the other the denotes some sort of give and take between the two sharing you give me a thing i give you a thing take take a minute to think about the difference because we've really allowed this soft way of thinking about evangelism to creep into our methodology and this word share is not the worst. We've set all these rules about evangelism that the Bible never does. And I think it actually has damaged us as a church. Not this particular group, but as a church as a whole over the last hundred years or so. Because we have all these weird expectations and rules concerning evangelism. We like to, quote unquote, meet people where they are. We like to preach the gospel always, sometimes use words. We like to build relationships rather than thump the Bible on people's heads. Of course, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with letting good works be our testimony. Nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong with wanting to build relationships with the lost. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But those good works... And those relationships are incapable of showing a lost person their status before a God that hates sin. They're not capable of doing that. The only way that they will ever hear that is through the Word of God. Me doing nice things for my neighbor does not tell them that they are a sinner and they need to repent. Only the words, repent. And believe, do that. When we share, when we're sharing the gospel, we have to be careful that we're not talking in the same kind of language that we would when we're sharing recipes with a friend. 
We are proclaiming the truth of the gospel. There is no give and take. There is only one way, and this is the right way. We're not asking for their opinions. We're giving them a message from the Lord, which is one that demands two things, repentance and belief. That's it. For preaching any other message in our churches, we're starving them. And to the lost, we're misleading them. Both are dangerous, so we have to be careful. We must bring the sure message of the scriptures. God is love, absolutely 100%. God hates sin, absolutely 100%. He loves his people enough to have died for them, and he hates sin enough to leave no sin unpunished. Those two things coexist. The lost will have to account for their own sins. Facts. The children of God will have their sins paid for. Not by us, but by Christ. That should be the message to the lost world. There's nothing else. We have to be faithful to that message. That brings me to the next point. The refugees. Look with me at the first two verses of chapter 16. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fields of Arnon. So here's a picture of their surrender, of their flight away from their own land. First, they're sending a sheep. This would be a symbol of submission the people of Moab much like the people of the rest of that part of the world were all shepherds and so this was a symbol of sending out their possession the thing that they own the thing of who they are we're sending you this sheep we are not able to fight you we surrender now we're running for our lives like fleeing birds they gather to this place called the fords of Arnon which is in the southern part of Moab waiting to cross into Israel. And what follows are a bit of a guide for us, for the people of God, and how they should treat the Moabites. And so look with me at verses 3 through 5. And remember, this nation has just been wrecked. These people who are fleeing for their lives are coming into Israel, and this is what Israel is told to do for the ones who used to be their enemies. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the heart, at the height of the moon, or at the height of noon, shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive, let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them from the destroyer, when the oppressor is no more, and the destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. How should you treat the Moabite who seeks refuge in our city? With kindness. Shelter them. Protect them. Hide them until there is no more evil. In fact, do so until there will be no more injustice at all. Because verse 5, Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. That steadfast love there is a covenantal word. It's a promise. And on it, this throne will sit, in, will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who, who judges and seeks justice and is swift 
to do righteousness. This is a picture of our Lord Jesus, ultimately. Think about it. Moab, this opportunistic enemy of God's people, who came from this sinful origin and continued to act sinfully, you need to take care of them. You need to protect them from evil. Then there will be one who will judge and seek justice and will be swift to do righteousness. I think there's a great picture of this in the New Testament. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. All throughout the Gospels, you have these little vignettes of Jesus dealing with a group of people or a particular person. And this particular story, I think, is very good for us. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. One of my favorite vignettes in the Gospels. So let me read this quickly. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman... Canaanite, she's not Jewish, she's a Gentile. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came out and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So here's this woman in great need. Her daughter is demon-possessed. She knows that there will definitely be one, that there is definitely one who can save her. She's been around. The stories of Jesus have definitely gone throughout. She knows that there's one who will seek justice for her daughter, to use the words of our text today, to be swift to do righteousness. So she finds Him. She runs to beg Him to help her daughter. And Jesus' words here might be hard for us. They may be hard because we want Him to jump right up and to help her, to run to do the thing that she wants Him to do, right? Which He's done in other stories. He's been quick to help at other times. But here, He does. And in fact, He says some words that we may read and think that these are insulting. He says it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. What a nice thing to say to someone. Is she a dog? A Gentile dog is a common insult in the time. Uh, Dogs were considered to be one of the lowest forms of life. They roamed the streets and they ate the trash. And so the Jewish people would also, would oftentimes connect the words Gentile and dog together. But there's more than one word for dog in the Greek language. Uh, Jesus is calling her a dog, but it's the word that's used for more like a house pet, like little dog or puppy, rather than the common street dog of the time. So not the insulting word. Jesus, what he's saying is, I have more to offer 
than mere dog food. This isn't scraps. This is the bread from the table. What did he call himself? The bread of life. It's for the children of God. Remember who Jesus came to save. His children from their sins. So it figures that he would come to the Jews, as we see in his ministry almost exclusively. Yet this woman persists. What does she want? She doesn't want scraps for the dogs. She wants crumbs from the table. She's wanting the good stuff. Even the dogs will eat the crumbs, just the leavings from the master's table. Jesus, seeing and hearing her faith, heals her daughter. And that's the end of it. We don't read anymore. He's the creator. He can, he has power over all the creation. The demon was unable to resist him, as we've seen in other cases. And her daughter was instantly healed, even though he wasn't there, which is just continually incredible to me. This is big for us today because I think, unfortunately, the church gets mixed up here quite a bit. We want nothing more than to do the good thing, right? We want to be the ones who give counsel and grant justice and shelter the outcasts and to be a shelter. We want those things. We want to take people to the throne that is established in steadfast love, to the tent of David. We want that. This woman in Matthew 15, what did she address Jesus as? Son of David. She knew these promises. She knew this is what the Old Testament called him. And while we want those things for people, and while we want to provide those things for the lost world, to offer bread of life to the dying world, we continually offer them dog food instead. We do so every time we give them a pep talk instead of the proclamation of the gospel. Every time we try to motivate them in their own strength rather than tell them, of the only one who has strength. We do so every time we deny the Scripture in order to allow the sin of the world to become a permissible thing. In the name of love, we love everybody. We don't want to call anything sin. We're in fact killing the world. We do so every time we make Jesus less than what He is. He is not their buddy. He is not their pal. He is the one that spoke and a demon went out of a little girl in another location that we don't even know about. He is that one. He said, stop, and the weather did. He said, be light, and light became. If we are giving them anything less than that, we might as well be giving them dog food rather than the bread of life. If we want to give counsel and to grant justice to the outcast, the only way to do that is through the truth of God's Word. There's no other way. Everything else is a band-aid. Nothing else works. There is no steadfast love. There is no faithfulness outside of the one who sits upon the throne of David, Jesus Christ. The truth is, without Jesus, they'll die in their sins, no matter how nice we've been to them. And he'll judge them eternally because of it. With Jesus alone, their sins are forgiven. That brings us to the plain truth. Verses 6 and 7. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence and his idle boasting. He is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. Their sin is pride. There's no hiding that. 
Judah has been charged with protecting them, there was no de- but there's no denying the sin of their pride. The next few verses go into this other series of places again, even showing the Lord in verse 9 to be weeping for Moab again, yet their sin deserves judgment. There's no way around it. And that's where we get to verses 12 through 14. And when the Moab, and when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. It's another way of saying his prayers will go unanswered. This is the word the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude. And those who remain will be very few and very feeble. They will be reduced to nothing. This is a common theme in the chapters that we've previously read, is it not? We've read about this, that when the Lord has a reason for this judgment, it's the sin of the people. It's usually their pride. It isn't an arbitrary decision on his part. The Lord did not roll dice and Moab came up that day. It is judgment. They have sinned. They must be judged. And I'll hit on this again. If we have any other message for a dying world other than that, it's like giving an ice cream cone to someone who's in a house fire. It doesn't help. It's really kind of insulting. It doesn't do anything. We should do things that are helpful. Absolutely. We should seek justice for those who are mistreated, whether they be the unborn or the elderly, and all things in between. We should constantly be seeking justice. We should constantly be seeking help for those who need help. Absolutely. There is rampant injustice in the world, and we as Christians really offer the only solution to that. There is no other help for that. We offer that. However, that doesn't save people. While taking care of their immediate needs and even their long-term needs, The ultimate need is Jesus every single time. Without him, without someone preaching him, they'll never hear it. That's what Paul told us in Romans 10. Without a preacher, how will they hear? They won't. We must be the ones who proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In conclusion, let us be a people who never shy away from the truth about the sin of this world. Never. But also, our own sin... Let's never shy away from that truth either, our own need for Jesus. Let us also be a people who proclaim the truth about the Savior of this world, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we pray that we would always take seriously your word, that we would always take seriously who you are as well, that we would never seek to make you smaller than you are in fact it's impossible that we would never seek to make the truth less than it is we can't even do that but that we would correctly represent you your word because it's really the only thing that a dying world needs in fact it's the only thing that we need lord help us to cling closer and closer to you it's in your name we pray amen